Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode, and I'm very happy to welcome Julian Lim here today to talk about her book, Porous Borders, Multiracial Migrations and the Law in the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, which just came out through the University of North Carolina Press at the end of 2017. Julian Lim is a professor and assistant professor of history at Arizona State University. And I want to welcome her to the podcast today. Julian, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me here. I'm so happy to have you, and I'm so glad I got to read your book. Um, before we get started in talking about what's in it, I'd love for you to uh, introduce yourself to our listeners, um, something about your personal and professional background. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school, and what led you to the professional position you're in now, and what got you interested in writing this book? Uh, sure, yeah. No, I'm, I'm happy to speak about my uh, personal trajectory. Uh, so I was born and raised in California, uh, sort of the Bay Area, about 30 minutes um, let's see, south of San Francisco, um, and um, went to UC Berkeley for my undergrad majored in English, um, took a couple of years off to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, as uh, a child of um, immigrant parents uh, who were really invested in me going some, you know, into the kind of traditional p- professional routes of medicine or law or, or business or something like that, uh, I ended up um, going to law school uh, at Ber- UC Berkeley as well, and then um, realized while I was in law school that I really loved law school and learning about the law, but I really did not enjoy practicing law. So, <laughs> so you, you can imagine how thrilled my parents were. <laughs> um, but so I, you know, I tried practicing for one year, uh, and it, it confirmed my suspicions that um, my my interests were lay elsewhere. Um, and and by, actually, by the second year of my law school. Um, at, by the second year of law school, I kind of realized that maybe practicing wasn't uh, the the path for me, and I had applied to graduate schools at that time. So by the third year, um, I knew what I kind of wanted to do. Graduated, practiced for one year just to make sure that it wasn't going to work out for me, and then um, was lucky enough to um, have been accepted uh, to Cornell, uh, where I went to get my PhD um, in history working with um, Mary Cristina Garcia, who's a Latino historian, uh, immigration historian, uh, a major immigration historian as well, um, and Derek Chang, who was my sort of um, co-chair in Asian American history. And so I went to graduate school interested in thinking about um, history differently from the way that I had been taught it um, in high school and in college. So you know, growing up in California and the Bay Area, especially, I grew up in a very diverse community. Where in our, and my family is very diverse, very mixed um, in terms of racial and ethnic and national origins. 
Um, but you know, when you get into the history classes, everything began, got so segmented. And so Latino history seemed very separate from Asian American history, set very separate from African American history, um, and so on and so forth. Um, but I knew that there was a lot of overlap, at least in my personal experience. And so I went to grad school interested in trying to find a way to study both Latino history and Asian American history together. Um, it seemed to me um, that that's just intellectually where, what I was interested in pursuing. Uh, and so I want to think about new ways of bringing these histories together. And in grad school, I happened to uh, reread Maroti Garcia's Desert Immigrants around the same time as uh, Erica Lee's book At America's Gates, where El Paso came up repeatedly as an important kind of um, uh, border city uh, related to immigration issues. Um, and so I knew that my story had to begin with research in El Paso. So, you know, Mario Garcia's book had been about Mexican immigration. Erica Lee's book had been about Chinese immigration. A lot of these things, a lot of these issues are happening around El Paso. And so I thought, oh, you know, this might be a really interesting kind of local history about a multiracial border city. Um, and as I began to do my research, go into the archives, follow the the path, I uh, it became a broader story about migration, immigration law. Um, and and ultimately a transborder immigration regime that reshaped, I argue, race relations and national identities in exclusionary ways in both the United States and Mexico. And so that's how my personal and my intellectual kind of histories all, all came together in grad school. Yeah. And your legal knowledge and expertise probably really informed the way in which you looked at this um, multiracial border environment, right? Yes. Yeah. So. Um, as I mentioned, I really enjoyed law school and I, I really enjoyed thinking about law and legal history and the importance of law. Um, and so I, I've retained that emphasis on kind of a legal history, but the book is is um, at the same time a social history. So I tried to kind of bring the high and the, you know, sort of it's, it's top down, bottom up kind of history together in, in this book. And um, you actually led me into the first question I was going to ask you. Um, which is, you know, that your introduction situates us, the readers, in El Paso, Texas. And I was going to ask you why start there, um, but you already started answering that question in terms of it's a nexus for so many um, different people living their lives, right? But could you speak a little bit more about how El Paso, the history of it, um, but also the, you know, the present day place of El Paso, how it can really turn a lot of our notions, what we think we know about the U.S.-Mexico border on its head? Like, what do we not um, know right away about the U.S.-Mexico border that El Paso can teach us? Um, so uh, in, terms of the, in terms of the introduction and the history of El Paso, uh, it's a critical um, border city uh, in the 19th century. Um, it's the first sort of major border kind of entry point because it because of its sort of um, unique location as uh, a nexus for as I like that word uh, for um, all these railroad lines that come together and so the second transcontinental railroad in the United States um, connects there and then you have all these other kind of lines that then radiate out from there that connected to all these different kinds of um, geographies and regions in the United States, but also into Mexico because uh, by, I think, 1883 or 1884, um, the, the, there's a railroad line that connects Mexico City 
to the border and then to all these other uh, railroad lines. And so that transportation system um, becomes pivotal to bringing all these people to the border region, uh, along with products and along with capital. And you just see, you know, by the 1880s, it's just booming. Uh, there's so much um, activity in terms of the industrialization, uh, the kind of urbanization that happens in El Paso and in, in Juarez, um, and then all of this really, really diverse immigration that's that's occurring starting in the 1880s, not, not just Anglos and, and more Mexicans, but also a lot of other kind of European immigrants are coming, as well as, and this is what I talk about in the book, as well as also um, Chinese immigrants who are coming through Mexico to the U.S.-Mexico border and then potentially trying to gain entry into the U.S. during the period of uh, the Chinese Exclusion Acts, the exclusion era of the United States. Um, and then there's, of course, African-Americans who are suffering under Jim Crow. Um, and so they're looking for freedom and um, might find it by moving westward because that El Paso, um, El Paso is at the most western point uh, border of Texas, where Texas meets New Mexico territory, which is technically where the Jim Crow line ended. And so African-Americans who are seeking sort of refuge from Jim Crow could either move westward and try to seek uh, to escape uh, those kinds of oppressions uh, by following the train tracks that in that direction or by going south into Mexico, uh, which they had been long doing uh, even since slavery times. And so it becomes a very interesting, um, a very diverse uh, sort of um, multiracial border um, city. And uh, that's where the book starts, kind of thinking about how do these opportunities arise and then what happens to these multiracial opportunities. Um, Today, uh, the El Paso Juarez border, uh, what was your question? How does it illuminate? Well, maybe we can save present day El Paso, perhaps for discussion towards the end, because I'd love to ask you about, you know, what the notion or your title porous borders can mean today. So maybe I'll save that. Um, but I do want to go back to, you know, what you were um, saying in terms of the different people who are coming in and through El Paso. So we've got not only Mexicans, not only Anglo-Americans, we've got African-Americans, we've got um, Chinese origin people. And I, you know, what you say in your book is that when we think about the U.S.-Mexico border and the borderlands, we tend to just maybe imagine a story of Mexicans and Anglo-Americans, but we don't really put together that it, it's, a, it's a border region with an, an incredibly multiracial history to it. And what you are trying to do is sort of disentangle all those threads um, and keep the border from being simplified in that way, that it's not just a, a two race kind of story or two group kind of story, um, but that, that it's more complicated than that. And um, you talk about this history of erasure of the multiracial borderlands. Um, so I want you to speak um, a little bit more about, you know, something you say in your book is that you really, in your work, wanted to move multiracial people from being objects of historical study to being subjects um, of historical study. Could you say a little bit more about what you meant by that? Yeah, sure. Um, and, but before I do that, I also wanted to mention, of course, that the, the rich diversity of the, the border region is also um, uh, another group that contributes to the rich diversity, of course, are, are Native or Indigenous peoples who've 
been long there, uh, you know. Um, and so, and and they're they're uh, the Apaches in particular um, appear as well in the book as an integral kind of group that um, pushes on uh, migration policy in, in certain ways. Um, so I think you know what's exciting about when we're thinking about multiracial studies and histories is that you know a lot of the earlier work um, was has been kind of uh, recapturing the history kind of story, which is very important. Um, but it, it's it's about kind of recovery, um, and so uh, let's think about how these two different groups have come together. Um, and a lot of it has been about sort of white and then non-white relations. And so there's different ways in which um, I wanted to expand our understandings of multiracial histories to show not only how um, you know different groups who are also not white were coming together, who are both not white or non-white were coming together, but also how it wasn't just about laws that were just kind of coming down on and trying to regulate their relations, but also just kind of recapturing um, and thinking about how these, the ways in which different um, non-white racial groups were coming together um, compelled different authorities or the state to to try to make sense of their relations. And so uh, I guess the what I was trying to do was capture their agency, right? Um, and, and thinking about how how do these Chinese, how do these Mexicans, how do these um, African Americans who are coming together in a very short amount of time in, in a pretty in a very particular place? Um, how do they come together? What sort of sense do they make of each other? What sort of relations do they build? And it's not always. I don't mean to suggest that it's always cooperative either. Right? There's a lot of conflict as well. Um, but I wanted to capture the sense of the richness of their experiences and the kind of sense that they were trying to make of their migrations and their encounters with all of these new different kinds of people. Um, and then, um, and then how they then respond to the way that the state tries to make sense of of these multiracial relations um, uh, and identities, um, and so that's, you know, how I try to move them from just being objects of historical study to to giving them a bit more agency and and um, turning them into subjects uh, of historical study as well. Right. Uh, well, I, I'd love to kind of go through each of your chapters um, and be able to give our listeners an idea of what you tackle in each of them. So in your first chapter, um, you do talk, this centers on those native populations that you were mentioning um, and, you know, making sure we know that the borderlands, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands were an indigenous space. It was indigenous borderlands um, before it became this capitalist borderlands with the railroad and, and all these um, new forms of, um, you know, settlement and investment coming into the El Paso region and the broader area around it. So you say at the at the same time that the border was kind of opened, it was it was closed, um, and that particularly affected uh, indigenous populations. Can you um, just tell us a little bit about the story behind that? Sure. Um, so the this section of the book, or especially this section of the chapter, the first chapter, is really building on a lot of the work that's been coming out um, in uh, in uh, Western history and in, in Native American history, and thinking about um, empire in, in the West uh, and the borderlands and the, the ways in which um, you know manifest destiny was not such uh, was not so manifest or was not so, you know as destined as we might think of today. Um, so I'm thinking in particular of Pekahamalainen's work or, or um, Delay's work, thinking about how indigenous groups and uh, 
and peoples were actually um, a force to be reckoned with uh, by Anglo-Americans and Mexicans and Europeans before them. Uh, um, and so it was a kind of imperial borderlands where Native Americans had, you know, an immense amount of power for so much well into the 19th century, well into the late um, uh, 1880s. Uh, we have the Apaches really kind of giving the U.S. government and Mexico a run for its money in terms of um, thinking about who has power in this region. And so um, th the story begins with thinking about how these indigenous groups have so much um, territorial sovereignty as well as power to, to control and regulate. And in fact, they're in some ways the first to regulate the entry of of the Spanish uh, and of Anglo-Americans because, uh, you know, as, as Juliana Barr points out in, in a lot of her work, uh, the Spanish really had to rely on the pathways and, uh, the, and the, the friendships that they made with, with um, indigenous um, leaders to be able to survive in the region uh, in the beginnings. And so um, th the story is slowly about how, the control over migration in the borderlands shifts over the course of the 19th century, in particular from um, the indigenous having a lot of the power to then, you know, the Spanish and then Mexico, as well as the U.S. trying to assert its authority over controlling the border, especially after, you know, the creation of the border in, the, in 1848. Um, the border is, is kind of, in many respects, an imaginary line, but the, the, the need by both countries to um, control indigenous authority and power in the in the West um, makes the border a bit more real because um, we start to see how these two countries start to collaborate and work together um, to to eradicate the Apaches from um, the border region and then how the Apaches you know rely on the border and give the border political meaning because uh, U.S. Army or soldiers can't necessarily cross the border very easily to chase the Apaches across into Mexico or and vice versa. Mexicans can't, aren't supposed to cross into the U S to chase the Apaches. And so there's a way in which, um, the border starts to have meaning migration regulation starts to, um, become animated during this period. Um, definitely by the 1880s. Uh, and then, uh, with the, with the kind of capture of Geronimo, who's sort of the last holdout of the Apache uh, resistors, I guess. Um, and the removal of the Apache to reservations um, and sort of the curbing of Apache power, uh, we do see kind of th that closing. And I put that in quotes because I don't want to suggest that the indigenous are completely erased from the border region. Uh, but in terms of migration and the regulation of migration, um, it is a kind of closing of the border with regards to native mobility uh, and then we see this immense transformation of the border and ideas about migration and how do we regulate migration that comes with um, the, the coming of the railroads and industrialization and urbanization. Mm -hmm. And with this sort of constraining of native mobility, it, there's also a facilitation of other people's mobility. So a lot of um, people, Mexicans, Chinese people, African-American people are are moving through this border region a lot more in your second chapter, in the chapter that follows. And you are talking about all the different forms of refuge that people are seeking. Um, and so, you know, in, in the book, you talk about how these 
this multiracial constituency is coming into contact with each other through work, through play, you know, on the streets, in their homes, through um, getting into conflict with each other, or in some cases, marrying each other. Um, what are what surprised you about the different forms of contact that people are making, whether it's cooperative or ridden with conflict? What surprised you about what you found in your research? Thinking back, I was surprised by two things. Um, by how rich the by how much people were actually um, coming together, uh, I mean, sorry, mixing. Um, they were, you know, there's an immense amount of coming together, mixing, um, conflict. Um, it's interracial conflict. It's interracial con- conflict. Um, there's, there's, but there's also a lot of cooperation in, in the marriages um, and the children and the families that are being born by uh, by all this mixing and the, this idea that you know. Uh, for example, in chapter two, what I what I try to trace out is um, this: the southern part of El Paso in the late 1880s and early 1900s is um, usually depicted as a predominantly Mexican, um, the, the the predominantly Mexican part of of town. It's called Chihuahuita, uh, Segundo Barrio. Um, but when I started looking to the to the to the records, I could see actually that. The, the city directories, the the census data was showing that it was actually a very mixed population, um, and actually that's where a lot of the the non-white um, mixing was happening, um, and it wasn't so so it became a very very um, it became very clear to me that there was a lot of mixing that was happening that is hasn't been captured in history yet at that time, um, but the other part that surprised me was how hard it was to find records. Um, to to show this kind of mixing, so it took a lot of work to to be able to recapture this uh, multiracial these multiracial dimensions. Um, because if you go into the archives, you know they're not at least when I went in, uh, they they weren't organized to show multiracial relations. Everything's pretty segmented. You know, you might have African Americans in El Paso, you might have the Chinese in El Paso, Anglo, you know, or, or um, uh, Mexican El Paso, but. Um, then you just have to really sort through and try to figure out how do I, you know, how do I find this this mixing that I'm that I I'm I'm intuitively kind of guessing must be there because I know that all these people are coming together and it can't be that they are totally seg- segregated from each other um, at this time uh, and so it took a long time and a lot of despair and anguish uh, moments of despair and anguish to finally find oh wait. You know, these nuggets started to come through. I could, you know, you might spend hours, hours, hours looking through these folders, and then you might find one document. You're like, this is, you know, it's like Eureka. You're like, I found it. Um, and so that was the other thing that surprised me, just wh- how hard it is to to get at some of this history. But it's, you know, for me, it was well worth it. Yeah, absolutely. You do, I think throughout the book, it's very clear how hard you worked in order to produce a multiracial history like this. And it's a reminder to those of us, you know, working on immigration or interested in, um, in interracial conflict, cooperation, interaction, that it, it, you have to really splice together a lot of siloed, you know, off information that um, also reminds archivists, like maybe that sometimes is not the most productive way to organize information either. Um, So, it, it helps us think about how can we do better in order to facilitate 
more scholarship that, that has a multiracial analysis to it. Um, I think it's a really good reminder. Um, when it comes to, to finding, you know, records of this contact, I'm sure that records having to do with policing um, certainly helped you get at um, that sort of community, ground level community study um, and looking at people's lives on the ground. And your third chapter is about policing, policing the border and policing the people who are moving through it and across it and near it. So who was doing the, the actual policing of the border? <coughs> right. So, um, yes, policing is a and police records are um, a very important part of um you know, sort of um, document available to us. And so actually in the second chapter, it begins with uh, this case, uh, the, these arrests of um, of these mixed race couples who were Mexican and African-Americans who had um, broken the Texas state law against, mis- you know, miscegenation. And so those police records were actually very important kind of thinking about um, uh, mixed race relations in that chapter. In chapter three, the policing comes from the immigration officials. It's more a kind of, it's a story that um, where with chapter three, I'm trying to kind of broaden out the the lens to think about the border um, as it's starting to develop. So dynamics that are happening in El Paso with this kind of multiracial, with these multiracial kind of crossings, um, elites in El Paso are starting to get concerned about what it might mean for their development as a, as an American city, city, you know, we don't want to look too differently from what the, from what Eastern U S cities look like. And so there's a lot of anxiety and there starts to be, there started to be calls for um, the, the government for Washington DC to send federal agents, to send immigration agents and to enforce the laws more actively, especially with regards to Chinese immigration. The Chinese exclusion act has been passed um, we have all these Chinese immigrants still coming here. You know, this shouldn't be happening. We don't want to have um, a, a city that looks uh, this diverse or, you know, that doesn't match American expectations. And so there start to be these demands for um, for more of more border regulation, more immigration regulation and for for more um, federal uh, presence at the El Paso Juarez border to stem what they see as an influx of uh, too much Chinese immigration, um, illegal Chinese immigration, in their opinion, right, um, into El Paso and into the country, um, and so that's where the policing um, and those INS records at uh, in the National Archives are again another tremendous uh, resource for historians who are thinking about who are interested in immigration, but also these sort of on the ground interactions between immigrants and, and and officials at the US-Mexico border. There's there's a lot there about the Mexican border. Yeah, those records are amazing and there is just so much to to go through. I mean, you could look at them forever. No, it's too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and when it comes to policing, when we think of the border, we at least Americanists or people who are who are focused on the American side of this story may think it's only the U.S. doing the policing. But what you actually talk about in in your last couple of chapters is that is this is a binational effort that U.S. and Mexican law does converge at the border to be regulatory, um, and you have this really interesting chapter that concerns the uh, Pershing punitive expedition. Um, in which I learned a lot of new stuff that I didn't know before. Can you give our listeners an overview of that 
chapter or those last couple of chapters? Sure. Um, so in chapter four, um, so up to this point, um, so chapter four deals with the Mexican Revolution, so the 1910s. Uh, and, and basically up to this point, Mexico has had an interest in, um, in regulating migration and immigration, but it's been a bit different. It had to take a different approach than the U.S. And so, um, you know, it, we can think about the example of the Chinese as this way in which um, Mexican immigration policy diverged widely from the U.S. And so the U.S. in, 18, in 1882 passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. That coincides pretty closely with um, Mexico's policy of actively recruiting Chinese immigrants at that time, because um, the idea was not to keep out immigrants, but rather to to woo, recruit, and try to bring in more immigrants to develop that northern border region, the northern frontier. And so um, it's not that Mexico has not had an immigration policy or has not been concerned about immigration, but it had to, it had a different kind of approach to immigration. Um, and even though you know, in the early, like I think in 1903 or 1904, it tries to start passing. Um, some regulations to to um, more closely police Chinese immigrants and 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 address complaints about the the desirability of Chinese immigrants. Uh, it, these these laws uh, they're not actively enforced. Um, and then the Mexican Revolution disrupts a lot of that momentum, anyways, because of you know the the decade of kind of the the chaos um, really disrupts um, you know, all all aspects of um, Mexican governance. And so um, chapter four is kind of a pivotal turning point in terms of what's going on in Mexico, what's happening with the Chinese in Mexico, um, and what it allows for um, African-Americans to kind of claim in terms of citizenship. And so just to kind of give a give listeners a kind of broad introduction to this Pershing expedition and and what it meant. Um, in 1916, uh, Pancho Villa, sort of the infamous bandito, <laughs> um, crosses the border, the U.S.-Mexico border into New Mexico and attacks a small American city of Columbus. Um, a couple of hundred uh, Americans, well, I have to go back and think of the numbers. But in any case, you know, Americans are killed. Uh, and then uh, Pancho Villa retreats very quickly. Uh, and the U.S. immediately sends um, General John J. Pershing and the U.S. Army into Chihuahua to try to track down Pancho Villa and either return him dead or alive. Um, uh, and so the U.S. prepares and goes into northern Mexico on this uh, what's called the punitive expedition. Um, and in the process, um, you know, they never actually capture Pancho Villa, um, but the but the punitive ex- expedition is very fa- was very fascinating to me for a variety of reasons. So um, one one interesting aspect of it was that it involved a very diverse kind of um, military uh, population, and so you had not only sort of Anglo American. Um, soldiers. You also had African American soldiers. Uh, you also had Apache uh, scouts who joined the military and helped them navigate the the terrain in, in Chihuahua. Um, you also had all of these refugees that then attached themselves to the company, to the expedition, and sought to um, return to the U.S. with them when they when they finally were called back in 1917. And so these are not only Mexican thousands of Mexican refugees, but also um, these 
really powerful Mormon colonists who had um, made settlements in northern Mexico. Um, they they flee as well as refugees. And then these, there's about um, a couple hundred Chinese immigrants who were in Mexico who attached themselves to the Americans and and try to leverage that uh, that opportunity to get into the United States despite the Chinese Exclusion Act, because many of them are laborers. They would not be able to come into the country otherwise. Um, and so it became a very interesting moment where I could think about all of these, think about this event in very multiracial ways. I mean, there were so many different kind of ways in which different groups were presenting themselves in different ways uh, in terms of a political legal status. And so African-Americans and Native Americans who were participating in the in the military expedition could kind of assert their status as American citizens um, uh, and kind of use that citizenship status to uh, military participation to clarify their citizenship status. While um, Mexicans, um, I argue, you know, they would have been, I think, under our common understanding, political refugees, people who had been, um, who were fleeing because of the political chaos, but but they actually found it easier to cross the border and gain entry into the United States at that time by presenting themselves as laborers, available laborers, because there was such a demand for for labor by Southwestern agriculture and different kinds of businesses in the Southwest. And so um, there you can start to see kind of how immigrants, again, being subjects, historical subjects, are, are shaping and fashioning their own uh, legal and political identities at the border to for their own purposes to their advantage, and so Mexican immigrants realize it's better for them to to present themselves as available laborers. In the meantime, this is where we start to see chi- these Chinese immigrants um, try to refashion themselves from these excludable laborers who would have been um, restricted under the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, and they try to make an argument for themselves as political refugees who should gain asylum or, you know, gain refuge into the country. And those um, who attach themselves to the military and to Pershing are actually successfully able to do so. They are able to come into the country because of their attachment to the military for the service that they provide to the military while they were in Mexico and then um, that they continue to provide to the U.S. Army in Texas while they're still kind of under um, sort of police control by the military. during World War One, as the U.S. Army there in Texas tries to prepare its soldiers for for the European War, and so um, this this episode for me was a very uh, intense moment when um, we can start to see immigrants, uh, migrants themselves, kind of thinking about how to best um, navigate the different kinds of restrictions at the border during this moment of political chaos. And then chapter five, uh, the last chapter, thinks about how that border starts to take um, take on a different shape or uh, an even harder shape in some respects, because at by this point, then with Mexico having um, you know gone through the revolution, is in a period of kind of consolidation and um, sort of new na- uh, national building, rebuilding, um, it starts to assert its um, power to control immigration and the border a bit more aggressively. And so chapter five, we start to see uh, not only the U.S. enacting very restrictive immigration laws, of course, uh, the most infamous being the 1924 uh, Immigration Act with the national origins quotas, um, but also Mexico during the 1920s and 1930s starts to 
um, take a more harder stance against um, uh, Chinese immigrants and as well as African Americans. So there's a variety of um, of um, orders to kind of have Mexican officials at the border, um, police, and kind of restrict African Americans from coming into Mexico, northern Mexico, uh, well into the 1930s. Um, and a lot of this has to do with Mexico trying to um, to consolidate a new national identity around th these notions of mestizaje and indigenismo, right? Um, which are it's are, are it's ironic because these are kind of mixed race celebrations of a mixed race identity based on um, sort of an Indian past, a romanticized Indian past, of course. But um, it's a mixed race identity that's being celebrated, but it came at the exclusion of um, Chinese who were, Chinese Mexicans and African Americans who or, or or Black Mexicans, right? And so um, it was a very kind of exclusionary national identity that gets played out through the policing of migration uh, at the Mexican border. And we we're still seeing that exclusion today. I mean, I every now and then I'm reading an article, you know, on the internet about. The, the exclusion of the, I think you call them the non-ideal mestizos of Mexico, right? Um, right. Afro-Mexicanos um, or um, the Chinese-Mexican population as well and um, people with that sort of ancestry. So it's something that continues far beyond um, the temporal scope of your book, to, you know, into the late 20th and now the early 21st century. Yes, definitely. I think it's something that um, Mexico is still um, trying to come to terms with. Um, and it's something I address a little bit in the, in the epilogue as well. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the book, part of the, part of the uh, let's say, goal of the book was to kind of show how, as we, we've been talking about, you know, the U.S.-Mexico border is, is a much richer kind of history than we typically think of. It's not just an Anglo-Mexican story, but it's this richer kind of multiracial um, history. But also to kind of think about how multiracial histories themselves got erased from um, the national histories of both the United States and, and Mexico and the national identities of both the U.S. and Mexico. Um, and, you know, for so much of the the 20th century, the 19th and 20th century, it's been about kind of erasing um, any kind of mixing and asserting a sort of monoracial structure of thinking about race. And it's not simply about white supremacy, right, uh, which it is for sure, but uh, the 20th century was also defined by kind of um, erasing and ignoring and trying to do away with this idea that um, Americans of different kinds of racial and ethnic backgrounds were coming together, even though they were constantly. And so what I want to make sure that listeners understand is that my, my argument by the end is not that by the 1930s, all multiracial kind of relations um, disappeared, right? We know that they continued, um, uh, but it's more that um, in national narratives, uh, they were erased. And this is uh, an active erasure that happens through uh, migration and immigration policy from both sides of the border as well. Yes, I, I think you do communicate that very well in the book. And I think what you do very well throughout the entire story that you tell us is, despite what the law is saying or doing or enacting, migrants or people in general are thinking much um, 
much, much more richly than, than one side or the other, that they're interacting with each other across a lot of different borders. They're strategizing about their movement and their identity in, in richer ways. Um, I think the authorities trying to police the border or craft legislation that divides people or simplifies people into one category or the other expect them to be doing. And so I think that definitely communicates that agency that I think you wanted to give the characters in in this book. Yeah. So um, I'm really interested in um, learning more about what you're working on now. I mean, of course, we should be celebrating this awesome book of yours at this moment, but is there any project that you're working on that you're excited about? Um, yeah. So I actually have two, well, uh, I've, I've got, I've got a couple of different projects kind of in the air right now, but, um, so one is, uh, I actually want to, I started and um, I want to finish at least it's going to be an article, I think that builds on, um, builds on sort of the observations of chapter one and something that you already kind of um, commented on, which is this idea that um, immigration, right, into this region of Chinese, Mexicans, uh, African Americans, Anglo Americans, Europeans, that it was um, conditioned on or depended on this idea of native removal. And these, and, you know, it's it's obvious for us to kind of think about and 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 sort of recognize today, but it's not something that's actually been kind of explored so much in in histor- by historians. Um, Native American history uh, is very separate from, in lots of ways, from uh, discussions by immigration historians, right? The, we are two kind of bodies of historians, areas that seem to not really talk to each other very well. And so I'm trying to um, work on an article that that is focusing on, again, the U.S.-Mexico border and particularly the Arizona region and thinking about how demands for the regulation and um, the removal of the Apache and of of, of Native Americans um, morphs into demands for the federal regulation of the border with regards to Chinese immigrants and that these are kind of connected um, um, actions and histories. Um, and so that's one article that I'm hoping to um, finish this year. The other two major um, projects, uh, more book-length projects, um, has to do, uh, they kind of go in different directions. So the first one um, is a history of marriage priorities in U.S. immigration law. So it's a broader kind of immigration history that's not solely focused on the U.S.-Mexico border, um, but it's uh, thinking more broadly about different ways in which um, marriage has been and different kinds of marriages have been prioritized over time since um, uh, the 19th century. Uh, and then the second one is a much more, it's still very much in the like early research phase, but I'm interested in thinking about the Hispanic Caribbean as a kind of maritime borderlands where um, empire and, and U.S. immigration law come together um, and um, work in in a variety of ways to shape migration from and between the the mainland and the the territories. So those are a couple of the different projects that I think um, take a lot of my interest from this first book into these new directions. I hope we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, they all sound like awesome projects. I can't wait to see more from you. Um, but in the meantime, I think. Um, everybody should go check out 
um, Julian Lim's book, Porous Borders, Multiracial Migrations and the Law in the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, out from the University of North Carolina Press. Julian, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. Thank you, Lori. Thanks for um, letting me share all this information about my book. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the New Books Network. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this podcast episode, and we've just heard from Julian Lim about her book, Porous Borders. I invite you to like and follow our New Books Network social media pages on Twitter and on Facebook. Thank you for listening.